everybody. It is great to see you. Have you noticed that spring is gently knocking on our door? Anyone notice this? Yeah, there was this moment. I looked out. I saw the sun rising as I drove in early this morning. And then last night, I noticed it was like light until after 8 p.m. And I had this overwhelming sense. Yes, it's true. God has not forsaken our land. So spring is on the way. It's going to be good. And uh, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, really honored to have you along for the ride. Um, before I jump into today's talk, though, I need to let you know a kind of a deadline that's coming up for something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, in October of this year, my wife and I are going to once again take a bunch of brave souls from Keystone to Israel for a 10-day trip. And if you have ever considered doing it, this may very well be your time. We just have a couple spots left, and our early bird discount is expiring in like two weeks. And like next week, I'm off on spring break. Then we have Easter. I can't talk about it on Easter. So I thought, well, I'll just prompt you today. If you've been kicking it around, uh, this is a great time to register. If you have any questions, you can email me. My email is really hard to remember. It's brady at keystonecc.org. Thank you. So if you have any questions, that's what we'll do. Uh, but so, yeah, today uh, we get to conclude a series that we've called In the End that, as many of you know, was developed based on the many, many conversations that I've had over the years with friends who were nearing the end of their life. And, and as I've said, during these conversations, I've noticed something, namely that the questions that people tend to ask when they're first exploring faith, uh, questions about life and pain, and God, and religion, and, and like even what happens when we die, well, those questions tend to resurface near the end of someone's life. And when they resurface, well, they carry an urgency that they simply didn't have when they were just sort of intellectual exercises, when it felt like life was just going to go on forever. As, as it turns out, there are questions that really matter in the end. And so for the past five weeks and for today, we're exploring a few of them as a way to prepare us all for the day that they become the most important questions of all. And so today, uh, what I want to do is sort of flip the script as we land the series. And instead of exploring a question that's often asked by someone nearing the end of their life, I want to share a couple of the ways that people have answered a question that I like to ask when I'm sitting with someone who's nearing the end of their life. And the question I always ask goes like this. What do you want others to learn from your life? Like it's a question about legacy. Like with the perspective that you hold right now as you draw near to the end of your life, how would you encourage those of us who still have some years left to live? Like as you reflect, what did you do right? And what do you wish you could do over? Because we all have a few of, of those. And, and what have you learned in the end, that's most important. And I've been asking this question with friends near the end for decades. And to be honest, I've actually made a few changes in the way I live my life as a result of the answers that I've been given. In fact, and this was kind of fun to think about, as a pastor, I've noticed that much of the wisdom that comes in the end actually affirms something that was articulated by one of the authors of the Bible thousands of years ago. And if you think about it, that really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, if there's a God who made us and who loves us, and I'm convinced that there is, then it also makes sense that he should also want to give us as much insight as possible into how best to navigate this life. And so what I want to do with our time this morning is first to explore that biblical strategy, and then I want to share a couple of those insights that I picked up in my In the End conversations that flow from that strategy. 
Uh, so first, the strategy. It was first shared over 3,500 years ago by one of ancient Israel's greatest leaders, a man by the name of Moses. And just a fun fact, for some reason, every time I imagine Moses, he always looks like, you probably know this, right? Charlton Heston, right? And here's the thing. I am a Bible nerd. I study the Bible, and Charlton Heston isn't even remotely Jewish looking, okay? I'm just throwing it out there, uh, but I guess that's both the power and the challenge of the movies. But, but anyway, Moses' strategy is found in an Old Testament book called Psalms. It was originally the songbook of ancient Israel. And before I show you what Moses had to say about life, this strategy that can be so powerful and so helpful, I want to kind of ask an obvious question. Like, why should we care what Moses, who lived 3,500 years ago, said about life? And, and as it turns out, I think that we really should lean in to what Moses had to say, because honestly, he had a lot of perspective on the human experience in the season of his life when he wrote this prayer. Uh, the authors of the Bible tell us that Moses lived well over 100 years, which was uh, very atypical in that time. And even in his advanced age, and, and you're going to love this, the authors tell us this, Moses, his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. In other words, Moses never needed reading glasses, which is shocking for those of us over the age of 40. I'm just throwing it out there, and if you're not 40 yet, fear not, your time will come. Uh, moreover, the authors tell us that Moses remained fully engaged with life until the end of his life, and I find that absolutely incredible. And after studying Moses' life, I think it's fair to say that, in a sense, he lived through three distinct seasons during his time on planet Earth. And the first of those seasons was spent in Egypt and in relative luxury. I mean, Moses was raised as the adopted grandson of a man called Pharaoh who served as Egypt's leader. And, and so he would have grown up in comfort and in convenience and as far as we can tell, Moses was a family member in good standing until the day when around the age of 40, for reasons we don't have time to get into, Moses murdered an Egyptian man and then ran for his life. And that event thrust Moses into the second season that he lived through, one in which he served for four decades as a shepherd, not in a palace, probably living in a tent dramatic contrast. And, and if you think about it, during those years, Moses would have had a lot of time to think, right, about his life, about his choices, about his regrets. As I imagine it, he would have spent countless days doing nothing but watching sheep and observing the sun as it traveled across the sky. And, and moreover, during those years, Moses would have seen a lot of sheep die. And I suspect that he would spend time pondering his own mortality, especially the question, you know, is this, is this how my life is going to end? And as it turns out, one day without any warning, Moses received an answer to that question when God recruited him, sort of called him off the bench to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And uh, Moses, in short order, found himself somewhat reluctantly back where he grew up for the start of his third and by far most exciting season of his life. And that season began when he appeared before Pharaoh and passed along a message from God that, that God had been watching and that the time had finally come for the children of Israel to be free. And I imagine Moses was shaking in his sandals during that request because he knew that Pharaoh wouldn't want to let his underpaid construction workers go at the request of a God who he had never heard of. 
And so initially, Pharaoh refuses, but then after some rather creative arm-twisting by God, Pharaoh agrees to release the children of Israel. And Moses led God's chosen people into and through the deserts of the Sinai Peninsula for another 40 years until the day they finally reached the border of the land we call Israel, the land that God had promised to their ancestors. And as a footnote, God never allowed Moses to enter that land. He only got to climb up on a mountain in modern Jordan and look at it, which maybe is why it's important that we know his eyesight was still good in the end, just throwing it out there, right? Uh, But anyway, all that to say, after all that experience, Moses possessed a powerful perspective on life, a perspective that he shared in a prayer that was recorded and later included in the Old Testament book of Psalms. And Moses began his prayer about life with a picture of God. Here's what he says. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all the generations. And he goes on, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's like Moses in this prayer just says, God, you are and you always have been. Like you existed from forever past and you will exist into forever future. And by contrast, somewhere between those two forevers is the incredibly short span of time that is my life. And as I was reflecting on this this week, I actually made a little sketch. As you can tell, it's pretty high quality. uh, To sort of capture the essence of what Moses is trying to say here, right? And I know I shouldn't quit my day job, but you've got this idea that forever into the future, like the line never ends in this direction, the line never ends in this direction, and then there's this blip somewhere in the middle that you find the span of a human life, and, and, and Moses' point is so clear. He's like, from God's perspective, our lives are short, and if that strikes you as a little bit depressing, check out what Moses wrote next, because as he continued his prayer, he acknowledged God's control over every human life. And he did it in a way that sounds a little bit like something a Marvel superhero would say shortly before launching a mission to conquer the world. (laughs) Seriously, check out what Moses says next. He says, you, speaking to God, turn people back to dust, saying, turn to dust, you mortals. And isn't that a great line? Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit offensive to us modern readers, but honestly, it wasn't the least bit offensive to Moses. I mean, he had just affirmed that not only has God always been and always will be, but then he wants to tell us that God also determines the beginning and the end of each human life. That's not something we get to control. That's something that he decides. And here's the thing. I've been a pastor now for like 25 years, and I think deep down most of us carry this sense. And in fact, I would even argue that um, the most irreligious people have this sense that something or someone controls the number of their days. And and here's why I say that. Over the years, I've noticed that the vast majority of people will admit that they pray whenever something happens that leaves them feeling out of control. People who don't ever pray start to pray when life starts to feel out of control, like when an accident happens or an illness or even a sudden job loss, and it brings them to the end of their ability to control the outcome, whatever challenge they're trying to face, they would confess. They almost instantly look up. It's like they lift their eyes from the problems of this world in order to seek help from beyond this world. The the intervention of a higher power who, even though they may have never considered or acknowledged it before, they suspect may ultimately control 
outcomes and may ultimately be able to intervene on their behalf. It's almost like there's this sense that there's more to the human experience than meets the eye. And I would argue that sense was hardwired into all of us, even the irreligious ones of us, by the one who created us. Anyway, Moses, um, as he continues, he circles back and he revisits God's higher perspective. So here's what he wrote next. He says, God, to you, a thousand years are like a day that has just gone by, are like a watch in the night. In other words, Moses says, listen, you know, from God's perspective, our sense of time is all but meaningless. And the implications of that reality are stunning if you think about it. I mean, our lives are a big deal to us, but from God's vantage point, we are here today and we're gone tomorrow. And Moses actually said that as he continues to write. He phrases it this way. He says to God, you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. I'm telling you, in this prayer, Moses, his goal is to urge his audience to live with appropriate humility and perspective, because he knew that it's natural for us to develop an overinflated sense of self-sufficiency, especially when life is going well and everything seems to be moving up and to the right. So maybe, and especially in these moments, it's critical for us to remember, and this is what Moses wrote next, He says, our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, maybe a few more for some of us, but yet the best of them are are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. And as I was writing this week and I was working through this text, I got to this point, I I jotted in my notes and I thought, you know, I bet I know what a few people are going to be thinking right now that that are joining us at Keystone, especially if you're here for the first time. You're probably thinking, wow, I am so glad I came to church today. This is like super encouraging. I cannot wait to see where the talk goes next, right? And, and if you're feeling that way, hang with me because as it turns out, everything that we've covered so far is really just the setup for what Moses really wanted to convey to his audience. And again, it's something that I've heard echoed in the answers to my question of what someone nearing the end of the life would want others to learn from their life. It's a powerful, powerful principle and it goes like this. Moses prayed, God, teach us to number our days. I mean, this is so profound because I'm telling you, none of us, we don't do this naturally. I mean, if I'm honest, I pretend like I'm going to live in this life forever. I I naturally live as if I'm always going to have more time with my kids And I naturally live as if I'm always going to have more time with my wife. And I naturally live as if I'm always going to have more time with my parents. And I naturally live as if I'm always going to have more time at my job. And I naturally live as if I'm always going to have more time to pursue what really matters to God. And maybe deep down what really matters to me. If I'm honest, I, I naturally live as if my time is unlimited And my days aren't numbered, even though deep down I know that they are. I know something else, too. I know that if I were able to maintain a sense that my time is limited, well, then I would live more intentionally. I'd live more 
purposefully. And, and I know that to be true in general because in seasons of my life, I've done that. And so have you, even though you may not have ever thought about it in these terms. I mean, let me take you back to the time you were planning a wedding, especially the girls. I know the guys, we just nod a lot and smile, right? Yeah. Hmm, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. But think about the time that you're planning a wedding or think about the time that you're getting ready for the birth of a child or maybe you're planning to take a test to, to get into grad school. And like from the moment you circle that date on your calendar, you started to organize your time and your life in order to get done what you knew you needed to get done. Said a bit differently, you planned your time based on the reality that that season was going to come to an end and you wanted to be prepared. I mean, there's even a sense I have to do this every week. I mean, I, I prepare these talks as if my days are numbered because they are, right? I don't know if you've noticed this. This is like an old pastor joke, but like Sunday mornings come around with a stunning regularity. <laughs> like it's like a hamster wheel, right? And I want to be ready because I want to respect and honor your time. And, and, and again, no respect to Lionel Richie. Remember him? Um, but there's nothing easy about my Sunday mornings. Okay, and, and save your emails. I know it was the Commodores. I was a DJ, I know, okay? But that was Lionel Richie singing. Anyway, I think this is what Moses is after when he prayed to God, teach me to number my days. He isn't trying to be depressing. He's just acknowledging reality. Moreover, he knows that if we can carry a sense that our time is limited, then again, we'll activate more purposeful living and, and we'll actually end up with less regret in the end. And Moses phrased it this way. There's a second half. He says, teach us to number our days. Why? That we may gain a heart of wisdom. And a wise heart in the Jewish mind is someone who connects choices and consequences. He's like, so God, teach me to number my days because that provides a sense of urgency that I live better. I live wiser. I'm more careful about the things I choose to do, and I'm more careful about the things I choose not to do. I'm intentional about the things that I need to limit. I'm looking at you, Netflix, and countless other streaming services, right? Yeah, he knows that if we number our days, we'll be more calculated when setting our priorities, I actually think that uh, you could summarize Moses' principle this way. This is our big idea for today. It goes like this. Our time is limited, so we need to be intentional with our time. Our time is limited, so we need to be intentional with our time. We need to live on purpose. We need to set our priorities. We don't need to allow life to set our priorities for us. And again, Moses had to instruct his audience to do this because this doesn't happen naturally. It didn't happen naturally for them. And even after thousands of years, it doesn't happen naturally for us either. As humans, our default is to fill our days unintentionally with things that in the end, we'll wish that we hadn't. And so that brings me back to the question that I've asked more than a few friends over the years who were nearing the end of their life. And I'm telling you, every time I ask this question, it feels like I've entered a thin space, like a space where the veil between heaven and earth is just a bit thinner. There's a, there's a weight to these conversations. They're not, they're not often like tearful conversations, but there's a weight because there's a sense that they, they know the end of their life is near. And when I ask them the question, really it's to honor them, like, what do you want to pass on? Like, tell me and I'll tell people. Like, wh wh what can you help us learn about what makes the most 
difference at the end of a life. And, and so what I want to do with the rest of our time together, I want to pass along just two of my favorite insights. Was it hard to choose? Yes, it was. But I picked two of my favorites. And these, these are the things that have made and continue to make a big difference in the way I approach each day of my life. And the first thing that I've had friends say to me in different versions over and over again goes like this. I wish that I hadn't said later so often. And uh, what they're trying to say is they get to the end of their life and they look back and as they reflect, they have this revelation. It's like all through my life, there are things that I knew, I knew that I should be doing. I had one guy say to me recently, like, I read all these books. I knew exactly what I should be doing. Changes that I knew that I should be making. Relationships that I knew needed more attention. But he said, instead of actually doing what I knew that I should do, I just got busy. I convinced myself I could just do it later. And he said, where I sit now, I can see the, the fault in that logic. He said, later is, later is a little insidious <laughs> because if you say you do something later, you, you do mean it when you say it, but you're also assuming that there'll be a time in the future when you'll have significantly more time, resources, and relational capacity than you do at the moment that you decide to put something off, Right? And in the end, in these conversations in the thin space, many people willingly acknowledge that they, that just isn't the case. They would want to warn us that all too often, if we choose to put something important off until later, a lot of times we don't ever get to it. It's like we never get around to making the changes and the investments that we know we should make. Sometimes because we simply run out of time, but, but honestly... More often, because these opportunities, they simply go away. I mean, life is always moving. Things are always changing. Kids grow up. Relationships collapse. Jobs change. People graduate and move out, or we move on. And when any of those things happen, like we don't get to do what we know we should do because it's no longer possible. I'm telling you, in these conversations, like over and over again, if there are any indication telling yourself that you'll get to something that you know you should do later is the relational equivalent of signing up for future regret. And we only get one life. And we only get one chance to build the sort of legacy that we desire to build. And, and so friends nearing the end of their lives would encourage us all to be very careful when we find ourselves telling ourselves that we'll get around to doing something important later. I think they'd also suggest that we need to set our priorities intentionally and then revisit them frequently, like not just New Year's resolutions, but like every Monday or even every day that ends with the word day, right? We need to come back around and say, am I living on purpose? Is there anything that's distracting me? And that way, in the end, when we, when we make the changes that we need to make and we do the things we need to do, we will have the privilege of reflecting on a life freer from regret. These friends would remind us that life doesn't go on forever, so we should make the most of it. We need to number our days so that we can live with wisdom. That's the first insight that I've applied to my life in these conversations, and I would, 
I would submit that you should consider doing the same. Uh, the second observation I think is equally powerful. And uh, I've had a lot of friends over the years in, in the clarity that often comes at the end of life who've told me something like this. I wish that I could have lived with less fear. In other words, um, at the end of the life, they look back, they regret all the things that they didn't do, things they didn't say, things they didn't try, all the risks that they didn't take because of the fear of what might happen if they did. And, and just so we're clear, we're not talking about the fear that follows patterns of foolish living, like actions have consequences and fear of some of those consequences can actually help us to make better choices. What they're talking about is the fear that keeps us from doing wise and strategic things that we want to do or, or even we have a sense that we need to do, the fear that keeps us from chasing our God-given dreams because of the what-ifs. And I, I think that's something we've all experienced to one degree or another. Like we've all had moments where we've laid in bed at night staring up at the ceiling and run endless worst-case scenarios of what might happen if I ask them out or do that or make that move or, or pursue that deal or, or take that leap of faith. But, but in the end, and again, I've heard this over and over again, it's natural to look back on life and fixate on those roads that we didn't take, that we should have taken due to fear. And one friend said to me recently, you know, I felt like I lived way too safe a life. Like I was comfortable, I was defensive, like my entire posture. But he said, you know, I, in the end, I just, I wish I would have taken a few more risks. And he said to me, I, I'm even a little bit haunted by the thought of what I may have missed because I talked myself out of trying something that deep down I really suspected that God wanted me to do because of the fear of what might happen if I tried. Like in the end, it really seems like many people end up regretting not pushing through their fears and experiencing what's on the other side of them far more than they regret the times they did push through and failed. It's almost like without taking at least some risk in the end, many, many people carry a sense that we may have compromised our God-given potential. And, and, and so my friends, nearing the end of their lives, would want to tell us, don't let the fear of failure take you out or shut you down. Push through that fear and see what happens. Because, again, you only get one life. And life doesn't go on forever. So make the most of it. If you feel prompted, jump risk, take a chance, and all the while, number your days so that you can live with the proper perspective. Okay, so what I want to do um, to conclude our, our teaching this morning is to share a quote uh, from a Facebook post from a few years back. Um, it's actually the final post that was written by a 24-year-old friend of mine uh, who was in the final stages of an absolutely heroic battle with cancer. I met her as a sixth grader. I was a youth pastor at the time um, and got to watch her as she grew up through middle school and high school. And I'm telling you, she was an absolutely incredible human being. Her, her name was Kate, and her words really, really left their mark on me. Uh, here's what she wrote shortly before she passed. She said, a close friend of mine with a similar diagnosis 
who spent the last year or so in a wonderful state of remission, traveling and loving God fiercely, has relapsed. And we sat down for lunch, and he expressed his frustration, but, but also his peace with wherever life takes him. He also noted that he would live out his days with honesty, passion, and integrity. Because of his cancer, he has a clarity about what is important and what is not, and experiences gratitude for the smallest things. She said, we are too young to be having this conversation, but some people go through their entire lives without ever knowing what really matters in life. And I love this. She says, so maybe this is a blessing. I'm telling you, knowing that we aren't going to be here forever changes our perspective on how we live now, what we do and what we don't do. And it also helps us to remember who God is and that how we choose to spend our lives, how we choose to spend our time really does have the potential to leave this world a little bit better than we found it.